Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the people's nations and all men of every language that live in all earth, may your peace abound. It has been seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from the generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar was at ease in, his, in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful and these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my head kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring in my, pre in my presence all the wise men of Babylon and that they might be known or make known to me the interpretations of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make it interpretation known to me. And finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and there is no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with the interpretations. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump, with its roots in the ground, but with a, with a band of iron and bronze around it, in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of the heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretations, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is within you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great, and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, 
Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence, by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and my surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride." Believe it or not, we are a full nine months into the year 2020, and it has been one for the record books. Massive wildfires, a global pandemic, economic uncertainty, racial tensions reaching a boiling point, and a presidential debate that sounded more like a playground argument than interactions between leaders of the free world. Maybe you're at a loss for what to do or how to feel. Maybe you're anxious or, or just feeling lost in the madness. Sometimes it is important, in fact healthy, just to express your fears and sadness, your anger and frustration, like this teacher did on national television. As much of the world continues on in isolation, people working from home, they're trying to figure out things to do with their family, uh, things to figure out how to pass the time. Yeah. 
Lindsay and Kels, a lot of teachers have been going online and coaches trying to, trying to help out their students and, and their athletes. Um, this one teacher in particular, music teacher, I thought was phenomenal. Not only did she pick up an instrument and decide to help out her student and spread some joy, but she wrote a song and as inspiration, she was going to share what she's been going through and how it makes her feel sure. while she is in isolation. Have a look. Hey, so as some of you guys might know, I'm a music teacher and I found that one of the best ways that I can process the whole transition to online learning and teaching is to write a song. So I wrote a song. I'd like to share that with you guys now. Here we go. <laughs> I know many of you have seen that before, but it is so good, right? Sometimes a little dark humor helps helps us get through these toughest of times. Now, speaking of tough times, we've been walking through the book of Daniel together, and what we read there sort of makes 2020 look like a walk in the park. Babylon conquers Israel and takes many of their best and brightest people into exile. As teenagers or early 20-somethings, Daniel and his three friends are torn from their families and forced to enter a three-year program of assimilation, in which they're going to learn Babylonian culture and history and religion and the court language Aramaic. They're pawns in a much bigger game, and they're going to be made to serve the very king and foreign power that conquered their homeland and keeps them captive. Now, as if things couldn't get any worse, they're nearly executed in Daniel chapter 2, and then Daniel's three friends are sentenced to death in a furnace in Daniel chapter 3. But through it all, we see that God is the lead character of the story. It is God who both works through Babylon to bring judgment on his idolatrous people, and it's God who delivers his people from maniacal kings and the trials of fire. And one surprise feature of the narrative is how this same God also goes out of his way to minister to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. In the book of Daniel, it's, it's there to encourage us. Whatever our ethnicity or nationality, whatever period of time we're living in, it is full of the good news that with God, we can flourish even while in exile. How we need that reminder. Big thanks to the Leckies and to the Lawlers for reading Daniel chapter 4 a few moments ago. You may have noticed in that story that at the very beginning of the chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is raving about how amazing God is. His praise sounds a lot like what you might hear in the Psalms in the Hebrew Scriptures. He writes, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, how is the king, who has people murdered for refusing to worship the idol statue that he's created, how has he come to have such reverence for Yahweh? Now, while Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with God by the end of Daniel chapter 3, he's nowhere near the level of praise and understanding that Yahweh is indeed sovereign over all. Well, most of Daniel chapter 4 is the explanation for how Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king of the superpower of the 6th century Babylon, comes to personally understand that Yahweh is indeed the Lord and author of history. 
But to under understand this story, we are going to have to understand something about trees. That's right, trees. In the ancient Near Eastern world, trees were some of the most sacred aspects of the land. Now, living in the Pacific Northwest like we do, we can appreciate a good tree. I mean, they are everywhere. There are giant sequoias in the Lettered Streets neighborhood, along with oaks and ash trees that are closing in on a hundred years old. Every hill has trees littered all over as far as the eye can see, deep green dense forests of Douglas fir and western hemlock and red cedars. We have trees everywhere. But in the arid lands of Palestine and Egypt and Iraq, trees are much more rare. In fact, at ground level, unless you were living next to a fresh water source, trees were extremely rare. It was only on the hills as you gained more altitude and the air got cooler that trees began to thicken and to grow more abundantly. And, of course, in that cosmology, the higher you went, the closer you were to the gods or to the heavens. So trees were, were represented life and, and shade and fruitfulness and sustenance, and they were revered for how they could survive much longer than human beings can, and how they could self-reproduce through their seeds. Most ancient peoples came to see trees as sacred and symbols of divine sustenance for all of life. So in Egyptian and Mesopotamian cultures, you have images of trees supporting the whole sky as if the gods were supporting all of life through this cosmic tree. And it's not just in Mesopotamia and Egypt, also the uh, Icelandic myths have the same type of image, the, the world tree. In Egypt, the goddess Nut is often depicted as a cosmic tree of fruitfulness and fertility. And sometimes ancient kings were depicted as trees, like Seti I in Egypt. In Assyria and Babylon, kings were seen as human representatives of the gods. And their job was to give life, the life of the gods, to mediate that life to their subjects through their policies and practices. So the concept of a massive cosmic tree was a standard image in the ancient world, and these images were already in existence when the book of Genesis was written. So when God is describing creation and his relationship with that creation, he uses the stock image of the tree of life because it was a symbol that most people would already be familiar with. But what makes the tree of life in the book of Genesis stand out among all the others is that it serves a distinctly different purpose from that of the ancient myths. In biblical narrative, God is the creator and the giver of life. God alone. He stands outside of creation, and yet he declares creation very good. God creates a garden and walks there with his creation, including human beings. And in that garden, among other things, are lush plants and beautiful, fruitful trees, and in the middle is the tree of life. The tree is God's gift. Eating from it symbolizes relying on God alone for our very life, and it comes with the benefit of eternal life. But next to that tree, or in similar proximity, stands another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And eating from that tree would be symbolic of saying, no, thank you, God. We're going to figure this out on our own. We're going to be our own gods and goddesses. We're going to find life in creation rather than in the creator. 
Okay, now that's probably a bit of an overview for you if you studied Genesis before. And if you haven't, you now have a bit of history with regard to how the image of trees was used and understood in the world that Daniel was living in. And this is important because of what happens next. Nebuchadnezzar is about to face a crisis. Have you ever heard the proverb that says pride comes before the fall? Well, this is case in point. In verse 4, we read, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. That word flourishing, that's tree language. It's the same word used when talking about a tree being rooted by good water or a tree filled with fruit and fertility. Okay, now pay attention. Here's where all the tree talk starts to pay off. Nebuchadnezzar reflects and he says, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind keep alarming me. Now, what was Nebuchadnezzar dreaming about that made him so troubled? Well, he was dreaming about a massive tree. The tree is so tall that it reaches the sky like the cosmic tree, and it was visible to all the earth, meaning the reach of its empire or its kingdom was massive, and it was fruitful and abundant, meaning wealthy and prosperous, and the creatures of the sky and the ground alike found shelter and food and habitat, meaning that this kingdom was over all the known world and therefore responsible for that known world. This tree of life was the king, Nebuchadnezzar. That is how he saw himself as he looked out on his land and reflected on his success and all of his power. But then there's a frightening twist. In verse 13, there is a a watcher that enters the dream. What is a watcher, you ask? Well, there are many suggestions and rabbit trails we could go down. Maybe we could save a little bit of that for the Q&A. Most of it is speculative at best. But the answer that is most true to the rest of Scripture is to see this watcher as a term synonymous with angelic messenger of God. Basically a herald declaring the news that God um, is himself declaring. And in this message, we learn that the tree will be cut down. Now, that's stock imagery for the defeat of a nation or the fall of a king. It's also stock language for God's judgment on someone or some nation, like his judgment on Israel, as in the book of Isaiah, when Israel is described as both a vine and a tree that is cut down. So in the vision, Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his glory and pride, will be cut down and some kind of metal band will be placed around the stump that is left over. Now, we don't know for certain what this metal band represents, but the meaning is made clear to us through Daniel's interpretation. In the grace of God, the throne will be preserved for Nebuchadnezzar when his humiliation has done its work. That is, when Nebuchadnezzar repents and confesses who is truly in control of the world. Now, to get there, though, Nebuchadnezzar will undergo a horrible transformation— He will become like the beasts of the wilderness. He will lose the reason and human uh, dignity of humanity and will experience the result of his actions, even at the height of his power. Now, Daniel comes to him and hears the dream, and by the power of God, he gives an interpretation. And to his credit, Daniel is reluctant to tell Nebuchadnezzar his, his horrifying news. I was moved this week when seeing how graciously Daniel treats his captor. This is no case of Stockholm Syndrome. This is godly compassion, and it's consistent with Daniel's character. 
So if we remember back to Daniel chapter 2, when all the wise men were on death row and Daniel was in there with them, he alone had the way to save himself and his friends. But he also advocated that all the wise men, including the Babylonian oppressors, would be spared. And here he shows again genuine concern. It made me check my own heart. In cases where evil or foolish people or enemies seem to get what they deserve, am I happy about it? Or should I see in their life my own hubris and my own sin, knowing that I too deserve judgment and that I too am in desperate need of God's grace? When Daniel is done relaying the meaning of the, of the vision, he goes even farther and implores Nebuchadnezzar to repent of his sins. None of that is coming from God, by the way. This is just Daniel. Hey, I know God, and this is what you should do. And, and he says, what you need to do, Nebuchadnezzar, is to treat people with mercy, particularly the poor in this case, just in case there's any way that God might find favor and you might avoid judgment. You see, Nebuchadnezzar may have been flourishing like a lush tree in his personal life, but the role of the king is to make sure all people flourish. Under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon had built two of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the famous hanging gardens and the great walls that surrounded the city. Excavations have unearthed over eight kilometers of these massive walls, and they're said to be so wide that a chariot with four horses pulling it could turn around on top of the wall. By all worldly accounts, Nebuchadnezzar was successful, but his people were not all flourishing. His success was at the expense of thousands and thousands of slaves, and conquered peoples, and political prisoners, and harsh treatment of the socially and economically powerless. What Nebuchadnezzar failed to realize is the same thing that leaders of nations today fail to realize, and that is that, that there's no flourishing or, or shalom unless there's flourishing and shalom for everyone. In the story, nearly a year goes by. Nothing seems to have happened as a result of the dream. But God's time is not our time. Nebuchadnezzar seems to feel like he's gotten away unscathed, and he's walking on the roof of his house, this massive mansion, looking over his vast empire, and he reflects to himself, Is not Babylon great, which I myself have built as a royal kingdom by the might of my power? and for the glory of my majesty? Have you ever heard another leader talk of their leadership like this? This is the height of human pride. This is sin personified. It's a person turned in on themselves. The text says that as the words were coming out of Nebuchadnezzar's face, a voice from heaven declared, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, Sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from humanity, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. You see, in the biblical story, all human beings are created in God's image. 
all human beings are supposed to have access to the tree of life, to the life of God and flourishing. But Nebuchadnezzar has made himself out to be like a god. He has seen himself as the tree, and he was controlled by his own appetites, caring only for his own needs and his own pride and his own glory, and flourishing, the flourishing of other people was not on his agenda. In essence, Nebuchadnezzar was living out of step with God's purpose for human beings all along. He was already living as a beast, but he had figured out ways to rationalize it. In what ways has our culture passed on values that are more beastly than human, more degrading than life-affirming? In what ways have we bought into these cheap alternatives for drawing our life from God and looking for that life in other things? In what ways have we sought life in our own glory or in our own independence or our own individual definitions of right and wrong? just and unjust? In what ways are we eating from the, the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life? In this story, we see that God grants three graces. First, this is a story of grace to exiles, to all who are oppressed under beastly regimes. Hear the good news. Beasts will be revealed and judged and God is over all the madness, and he will deliver us in his good and perfect time. Second, this story is grace to all, who, uh, all oppressors who, while there is still time, can repent and come to their senses. In this story, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and cries out to God. Now, for those of us who feel more in the role of the privileged than the oppressed, hear the good news. We too can cry out to God for help and repent and know that he hears us. And third, this story is good news for everyone, including you and me. The tree of life in the garden was taken from us when we rebelled as human beings. Actually, we were cast out of that garden. But outside the garden, God provided a different way forward. He chose Abraham and his family, who later became the nation of Israel, whose job it was supposed to be to draw all the nations to know the love of God, to know the life-giving presence of God. Israel was referred to as a vine or a tree, but when Israel, like Adam and Eve, failed, even she was cut down. But God would not give up, and he provided from that fallen tree of Israel a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesus the Christ. Jesus is the new tree of life, who, like a seed, died and was buried only to rise in new life, offering the shade and fruitfulness and abundance of the kingdom of God to all who would but cling to him through faith, through trust. If you find yourself at a loss in the madness of 2020, or simply in the mess of your own life, no matter what year it is, let me encourage you to turn toward Jesus and to cling to the tree of life. He will shelter you. He will shade you. He will nourish your soul and provide an everlasting kingdom where you can thrive. I invite us now to a time of communion where we can respond together.